every day and to wake up praising you afresh. We know that everything in creation praises you and may we join with their voices and praise you again this morning as we look at the mightiness of your creation. We love you, Lord. I pray now that you go before your servant, anoint my tongue and mind, help me to truly give the Lord Jesus Christ the glory in all that we say here this morning. Help us to focus on what what your creation says to each of us also individually. And may your Holy Spirit have his will and way in what is accomplished here this morning, both through word and through song, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, after completing our look at the first day of creation, which we looked at, now you can go back to Genesis chapter 1, we looked at in verses 1 to 5, we have found that the infant earth was no longer without form, although it was still void, meaning without any inhabitants of any kind, living or non-living. The Holy Spirit's moving, which we looked at in verse 2, the vibrating movement over the earth, had brought form to this planet, and that form was in the shape of what? A sphere. And the Spirit had also brought motion to the earth. The earth was now moving because it was beginning to experience the development of night and day as it began to spin on its axis. Of course, earth would only experience day and night because God had also brought light into the world on that first day by way of his spoken command. And that we saw in verse 3. Therefore, the earth was no longer covered completely in a deep, dark, pitch-black darkness. Light had been summoned into existence in the physical world. But this light was not the light, remember, of the sun or the moon, the reflected light of the moon or the other stars, because they weren't made until what day? The fourth day. So this light, this initial light, was not the light of the sun or the moon. It was intrinsic light, and it was interesting, I found out this week, that the word for light used there in verse 3, the Hebrew word is or, I mean not E, O-R, whereas the light that we learn about when we get to the light of the sun and the stars in verse 16 is the word ma-or. So the word or means intrinsic light, you know, just light itself, whereas the word used in verse 16 speaks of light givers or light generators. Now we know that the length of the days and the nights was the same for the first three days of light, apart from the sun and the stars, as the length of the days and nights of all the latter days of the sunlight and the starlight because how do we know those days were all the same length because each day ended with the same boundaries what were those boundaries evening and morning also the light must have been shining upon the earth from the same direction in space on all of those days to have made consecutive evenings and mornings throughout the creation week So the light on days 1, 2, and 3 was coming during the daytime just as though it was coming from the sun. And light was coming in the nighttime just as though it was coming from the reflected light of the moon and the stars, even though they had not yet been created. Now, if that sounds weird to you, we have to remember that for God... It is just as easy for him to create waves of light energy as it is for him to create light generators which produce such waves. Remember, we talked about this a little bit last time. The only real need for those generators of light, the sun, the stars, the moon isn't really a generator, is it? It just reflects the light of the sun. But the only need for the generators themselves is to divide the light from the darkness, and that's the same purpose that the initial light of verse 1 was given. They had the same purpose, to divide the light from the darkness. But the only additional purpose for the sun and the stars and the moon, as the Holy Scripture tells us in verse 14, if you look there, the only other purpose is that they were to serve to mark seasons and days and years and to be as what else? Something strange, the scripture says. They were also to serve as signs 
And that's very interesting. When we get there, that's very interesting how the stars are signs to mankind of God's creative splendor and his glory in the heavens. So probably, now although we can't say for sure, but probably the light was just intrinsic light waves that would be coming eventually from the light generators, but God made the, the waves before he made the stars, the generators. So after day one of creation, the original matter which God had created, along with time and space, was given, the original matter was given form, and that form was the form of a sphere, and it was given light, this is day one, given form and light and motion. Yet the earth was still without any inhabitants, right? It was still void, and it was still covered in water. Now, since his purpose for the creation of both the universe and, in particular, the earth, was to make it a place uniquely suitable for human life, God determined to create an oxygen-rich atmosphere and also a hydrosphere of liquid water. In other words, he was going to give earth an atmosphere for men and animals to be able to breathe, and he was going to put water on the land because he was going to put water on the earth because we also need, for life, we need water. And both of these, our oxygen-rich atmosphere and our water, are unique to the earth. Now, before we get into a discussion of God's formation of the atmosphere of our unique planet, I want to go through some very interesting facts with you that show us the amazing complexity of order and design of this place which we call home, this planet that we live on. Now, evolutionists and unbelievers and skeptics would call all these things that I'm going to be sharing with you, they would just call them chance or coincidence. But those who really have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are receptive, I think will absolutely find that they speak of a divine designer, a grand intelligence, a supreme wisdom, an all-powerful, vastly intelligent, sovereign creator God. Sir Oliver Lodge, who was a British scientist, said this. He said, quote, the universe is shoutingly full of design, plan, intention, purpose, and reason. So in our outline, we're going to look, first of all, at the accuracy of our home before we then look at the atmosphere above our home. In researching the size of planet Earth, men have discovered that its mass and size are perfect to sustain life. The diameter of our planet is 8,000 miles across, and the circumference around the planet is 25,000 miles. Now, if the Earth's diameter was just slightly less, almost the entire planet would be reduced to a wasteland of snow and ice due to the lessening of the atmospheric mantle around the planet. In fact, if our Earth varied in size by only 10%, either 10% larger or 10% smaller, there would be no life on Earth as we know it. Also, if the average temperature of our planet was changed, was raised only by 3 or 4 degrees, then what would this do? It would melt all the glaciers at the poles and the major cities of the world would be flooded. They would go into non-existence, as well as thousands of square miles of our most fertile land would be underwater if the temperature was only raised by three or four degrees. Do you know what the average temperature of planet Earth is, by the way? 57 degrees, that's the average. Now, the axis of the Earth, now the, the axis, by the way, you know what the axis is. I thought I had a picture of that somewhere. The axis of the Earth is the imaginary line, you know, that goes from the north through the North Pole down to the South Pole. The axis of our Earth is is at a twenty an angle of twenty three point five degrees from the perpendicular, and it is this tilt. You know, the Earth is not straight up and down; it's at a little tilt. This tilt 
is what makes it appear that the sun goes north in the summer and south in the winter, and it's what gives us our four seasons in the temperate zones. Now, this tilt isn't just an accident. It's this tilt of the earth which gives earth twice the volume of land which can be cultivated and inhabited. You know, twice what would be possible if the sun was just always over the equator with no change of seasons anywhere in the earth. And of course, it's this tilt which also gives us the beauty of our four seasons. It would get kind of monotonous if we just always had the same temperature, wouldn't it? I like the change in seasons. And by the way, long before men ever discovered that the earth does rotate on an axis, you know, they didn't know that. They thought the earth was flat and stable. They didn't know we were moving, that we were spinning around. They didn't know the earth was at a tilt. Long before men ever discovered that, they could have gone to the very first book of the Bible that was ever written, which was the book of Job, and have read this. It says, it, speaking of the earth, is turned like clay to the seal. Now, what that refers to is small cylinders which the ancient people used in writing. And those cylinders had sticks down through the center of them. And while clay was yet soft, they would take those cylinders and they'd hold on to the sticks, kind of like a rolling pin, you know. And they would roll the cylinder across the soft clay to make an impression. That was how they wrote on their clay. So Job was saying that the earth rotates on an axis just as a cylinder making a seal. Furthermore, it is only due to the thin layer, you hear a lot of talk about this, the thin layer of ozone high up in our atmosphere that we even live at all. It is the ozone layer which protects us from eight different killer rays from the sun. If the small belt of ozone, here's a you know, picture of it, this little belt, which, if it's compressed, it's only one-eighth of an inch thick, the ozone layer. And this small um, belt is some 12 to 18 miles above the earth. If it was to drift away into space, all life here on earth would perish. Not only is the ozone layer a miracle, which makes life possible, but then so too is water. In the entire universe, liquid water, liquid water of any kind, fresh or salt, is unique. Contrary to what many believe to be otherwise, the liquid state of water is a rare, it's an exotic rarity in the universe. Most matter in the universe seems to consist either of flaming gases like stars are made out of, you know, our sun, or frozen solids floating out there in the abyss of space. And it's, again, very interesting that water, which is the natural resource which is most mentioned in the Bible, in the Word of God, the water symbolizes what? It symbolizes the Word of God itself, it symbolizes the Holy Spirit, and it also symbolizes the new birth, John 7, verses 38 to 39. But it's interesting that water is the only natural resource um, that, that exists, it's the only chemical that exists at earth temperatures in three states. Did you know that? The only one that can exist in a solid form. What's a solid form? You put it into your drinks. Ice, and of course liquid, and the third one is vapor, right, water vapor. Isn't that interesting? The three, here we have again three, reflecting back to the triune creator. And all three of these forms of water are mandatory for a healthy earth. Now because liquid water is able to absorb and to give off immense quantities of heat, it moderates the temperature of our entire planet. The moon has no air, and the moon has no water, and therefore the moon, which is, you know, basically the same distance from the sun as us, the moon has a daytime temperature, you really wouldn't like this, of 200 degrees Fahrenheit, and it drops down to minus 200 degrees at night, and that's 
because it doesn't have the atmosphere and it doesn't have water. Furthermore, water, again, you know, like light is such a mystery, water is also a mystery. Water refuses to behave like other materials. It's common knowledge that when any material, not don't think of water right now, but when any other material is turned from a liquid to a solid, it becomes denser and therefore heavier, and so it sinks. Yet water alone does not do that. When water turns to a solid, what do your ice cubes do? Do they sink to the bottom of your glass? No, they float. I mean, that's weird. No other material does that. But why did God do that? Well, if water would freeze, then all of our northern lakes in the wintertime, the, 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 the ice would sink to the bottom, right, of all those lakes, and it would freeze from the bottom up. And what would that do to all the sea life, all the marine life? It would kill it all off. And we need the marine life. We need those for the whole cycle of Earth so that we would keep living. Isn't that amazing? But the evolutionists would say, you know, coincidence. Now, as mentioned, water in the scripture does symbolize the word of God. It symbolizes the Holy Spirit, and it symbolizes the new birth. Some of these parallels between water and salvation are, now there's many, but some of them are that, one, both are absolutely priceless. You can't put a price on the word of God or on your salvation, right? You can't put a price on water because it's priceless. And so, but they're priceless, but they're absolutely free. Secondly, both are available to all men, whosoever. And third, as water is essential for physical life, salvation is essential for eternal life. It says in Revelation 22:17, the Lord speaking, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, see there's that whosoever will, let him take the water of life, what's the word? Freely. The physical water which God uniquely put here on planet earth serves as a constant reminder of the life, the eternal life, which the Lord Jesus Christ has provided for us. And again, in its three states, which is unique, the only chemical that is found on earth in three states, liquid, solid, and vapor, it also reminds us of its triune creator. And then, too, we should stand in awe at the amazing accuracy and the smoothness with which the universe moves. It's like a perfect, flawless machine. The precision motion of the stars in their orbits is all controlled motion. The universe is not in chaos. It all follows a very orderly pattern. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God declared his creation. He said that the, um, the ordinances of the moon and the stars were fixed. He, you know, he declared this long again before men ever discovered that there were orbits. The orbits of our solar system are so absolute that scientists can predict, for an example, um, an eclipse to the very hour. And the only reason they can do that is because the orbits are fixed, just as Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36 declares. They are absolutely constant. God is upholding them at a perfect pace, which can be even charted mathematically. And then man should be totally astonished by the array of correct details which have made our planet livable. Forethought and planning and design are everywhere evident. I mean, everything you look at speaks of a divine architect, a divine creator. As it says in Hebrews 3, 4, for every house is builded by some man. The house that you live in didn't just come about by chance, did it? Some man, some men, plural, had to build it. And it says, but he that built all things is who? Is God. And as just a little footnote here, I don't know if I mentioned this in the lesson last time or not, but... Here again, we have another three. There are three motions on the earth, of the earth. Did, did I mention that in the notes, maybe? 
The Earth spins on its axis, that's one. It also goes around our sun in its orbit, and then our whole solar system travels around the Milky Way. So again, there's another three, which I found very interesting. I also, I'll just give this to you, and you can do with it what you want. My son always gets upset with me when I carry things too far, (laughs) but I thought this was interesting. The Earth travels around the sun, and this was from the World Book Encyclopedia, okay? The the Earth travels around the sun at a speed of 66,600 miles an hour. I mean, does it feel like we're going that fast? (laughs) But I thought that was really interesting because six is the number of man. God made earth for man. And there we have 66,600 miles. And I just thought that was interesting. I'm going to give you another one later on. All right, now it's also evidence of God's creative power that the earth is perfectly balanced. Through the study of the balance of the earth, which is a study known as an isostasy, men have learned that there is equal weight on the earth to support land masses and valleys and oceans and mountains. The waters in the oceans, I don't know if that's a picture I wanted to use or not, uh, the water in the oceans, for example, exerts pressure against the shorelines. And that's what keeps the mountains up. Otherwise, the mountains would just slowly sink back down. But every time those waves come in, they're exerting pressure against the earth, and that keeps, you know, just think like wrinkles, you know. It keeps the mountains in place. Isostasy, or the study of the balance of the earth, has shown that the earth has different heavy weights of mountains and rocks in strategic places around the earth which keep the whole world Balanced, You know, so that the earth, if all the mountains were just on one side of the earth, what would happen? The earth would totter. It would be lopsided. But it's just so perfectly balanced. Also, they have found that the heaviest material or the heaviest concentration of matter lies at the center of the earth. And that, again, gives the earth balance. And by the way, not only does the outside of the earth consist of three parts. Remember how we've talked about the... Well, actually, there's three levels of heaven, right? There's the atmospheric, the universal, and the third heaven where God dwells. Then there are three um, fields of activity of the earth. There's the atmospheric heavens, the land masses, and the water, right? That's on the outside of the earth. Guess what? There are three internal divisions of the earth as well. And this I got out of the encyclopedia also. There is the mantle, which is 1,800 miles thick. This is a picture right here of the mantle. And it contains many, many heavy rocks. And then right here is the what is called the um, outer core. It's 1,400 miles thick. It's made of hot liquid rocks. And then right here in the center, which is only 800 miles across, is the very hottest part of the Earth. It's um, called the inner core. So we have also inside three, a division of three. And, of course, you know some people feel like hell may be in the center of the earth where it's literally like a lake of fire, extremely hot temperature. Now, remember I told you how fast we're moving, 66,600 miles an hour. Well, I also read this in the World Book. It told of the weight of the earth. Now, how much do you think the earth weighs? Well, you'd never guess in a million years, probably, but it weighs 6.6 sextrillion short tons. That is six with a comma, and then a 600, and 18 more zeros after that. (laughs) That's pretty heavy. But isn't that interesting that, again, we have the sixes, and six is the number of man. I just thought that was interesting. Now, although men did not begin to discover Earth's perfect balance until 1959, a lot of us were alive in 1959, that's when the study of isostasy came about. That's when men discovered that the Earth was balanced. But they could have again have gone where? to the word of God, and they could have found out that, yes, the world was made balanced because in Isaiah 40, verse 12, 
This question was asked. It's a rhetorical question, question knowing that God is the answer. Here's the question. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and measured out or meted out heaven with the span of his hand? You know, he measured it. Measured the oceans with his hand, measured the heavens with his hand, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. And the obvious answer to that is who who did all this? God did it. God made the earth so that it would be perfectly balanced. Now it's important, too, that our earth has a moon because the moon causes the ocean tides. Ocean tides have a great value not only in cleansing our, uh, our shore, the shorelines of earth. Can you imagine what would happen if, if the tide didn't come in and wash all the debris out? I mean, it would be a mess, stinky, awful mess in no time. But not only do they cleanse earth's shorelines, but the ocean tides help ocean life to prosper. Tides provide the important feature of ocean currents. If there were no currents in the ocean, then the oceans would stagnate along the seacoast of the world. And the death of marine life, both animal and oxygen-producing plants inside the seas, would soon perish. So, I mean, would soon follow. So man's very existence actually depends on the moon's tidal regulation of the Earth's complex food system. And that's another study in itself. You don't need to worry about understanding it. But it is very important that we do have a moon. And it's very important the distance that the moon is from the Earth. It's also very important that we don't have two moons. Two moons would be too much and, again, We'd be, it just wouldn't work. We have to have one moon. It has to be exactly the distance that it is. Now, we know, of course, that Earth needs the sun also, right? For many obvious reasons. But there are also great hazards in living as close as we do to the sun. We are only 93 million miles away. The explosions on the sun's surface bathe Earth in radiation. However, we are protected from harm by multiple levels of safety shields. When, for example, deadly x-rays and gamma radiation from the sun collide with molecules that are high up in the atmosphere, the radiation energy is then absorbed and broken down to a harmless level by the time it reaches us. It's harmless. Also, as mentioned earlier, ultraviolet radiation is stopped by the ozone layer above the Earth's surface. High-speed fragments of atoms, which are called solar wind, are also deflected by the Earth's magnetic field. There's a magnetic field around the Earth. And therefore, these atoms are reflected away from our most populated areas and are sent instead to the far north and the south, the poles, where very few people live. Then, in addition, the 93-mile distance that we have from our sun, also that distance separates us from harm, um, because if this expanse between the earth and the sun was not a vacuum, then the explosive sounds, I mean, you think Fort Bragg is bad, I can hear it from my house, you know, the vibrating from Fort Bragg. But if there was not a vacuum, if that 93 million miles was not a vacuum, then the explosive sounds coming from the sun would absolutely deafen every single one of us. If the distance was less, then the solar heat from the sun would instantly vaporize all life here on planet Earth. We'd be vaporized in an instant if it was any closer. So the sun was uniquely created for the Earth. In fact, how about this precision? If the the Earth was 1% closer to the sun, 1%, or if the Earth was 1% further from the sun, there would be no one around on Earth to do all these measurements. That's precision. Is our God 
A God of detail? Yes, he is. Early scientists used to believe that all stars, all stars were just like our sun. In other words, that all, all the stars were exactly the same. However, it has, soon, it has been discovered since that that even though there are more than 10 to the 22nd power number of stars in the universe, and that, of course that's just a guesstimate because no one has ever counted them and no one will ever be able to count them. That's 10 with 22 zeros behind it. That's how many stars they guess are up there. Even though there are that many, each and every single one of them is unique. There are no two stars which have exactly the same properties. And how do we know this? Well, we know this because a star has so many variables in its makeup that chance or probability of two stars being identical to one another is absolutely zero. There's no chance at all. Now, variables include, for example, the total number of atoms in a sun or the exact composition of elements or the size or the temperature. I mean, there are some stars out there that you could you can put millions of our suns into them. They're that big. And then there's some little bitty tiny ones. So there's so many variables that they can say with absolute assurity that no two stars are the same. However, there is something extra special about our star, the sun. He wears sunglasses. <laughs> no, that's not it, but that is a cute picture. It has been found that most stars vary much more, much more than our sun in the amount of energy that they give off. No matter, therefore, where a planet might be located around most of the other stars, if not almost all of them, if there even are any other planets out there, no one has ever seen one, so there's no proof that there are any other planets other than in our own solar system. But even if there were other planets out there around these other stars, life would not be possible because their energy output varies so much. Yet our sun varies in energy output by only one-tenth of one percent, therefore making life here on our planet possible. Isn't that amazing? Or is it just chance? Was there a designer? I believe so. Now, just as there are no two identical stars, it is also true that every single snowflake, every single grain of sand, every single blade of grass is uniquely different. I mean, they look alike, don't they? If you look at the, sand, the grains of sand on the beach, they all look alike to us. So they might appear the same to the naked eye, but on the microscopic level, there is practically an infinite number of ways that their atoms are arranged. As you can see here in the, the pictures of these, uh, just a few snowflakes, it's interesting that every snowflake is a sextagon. Sextagon, is that, am I saying it right? Everyone has six sides. There's again that number six. But the average snowflake, for example, has about 10 to the 20th power number of atoms, all right? That's 10 with 20 zeros behind it. That's how many number of atoms it has arranged within itself. In every single object, great or small, non-living or living, non-human or human, God demonstrates, you see, his glory and his creative genius. And that is why each and every single one of us is absolutely unique. You might have somebody that comes up and says, oh, you must have a twin somewhere because you look so... But there is no one who ever has been exactly like you, no one who ever will be exactly like you. It's impossible. There's too many variables in our makeup. I mean, you are unique, just as every single grain of sand, every single snowflake is unique, every single star. We also are unique. The perfection of the earth and the universe and the creatures of the universe is absolutely a fascinating and almost exhaustless subject. I mean, this is a subject I hope we'll get back to over and over again in our study of creation, but it's one that there is no limit 
to how precise and how wonderful God's universe is. You know, I was just reading something. I've been trying to read a lot of stuff about all this so I can get smart and stay one step ahead of you. But uh, they used to think that, you know, the Big Bang just exploded and everything went out there and all the stars are just kind of scattered all over the universe and there's no reason to their formation. I mean, they're just out there scattered in bunches here and bunches there. Well, the latest thing is that they've discovered there is precision to the way they are clustered and they have actually found that it's like a gigantic chessboard out there. (laughs) And that, again, shows a great designer who created it all. All right, so we're going to have to return to this subject in later lessons, but I just wanted to give you an idea so that you don't get frustrated with all the details. God is a God of detail. He loves detail. Every word in his book is there for a purpose, so I believe that we need to also center on details. But don't let it bog you down. Just get the overall picture of how magnificent he is. What I want you to understand is that you can believe with 100% assurity, the creation account. You don't have to be fearful of science. Science does not disprove creation. On the contrary, the Word of God is very, very scientific. Very scientific, and that's what I want you to see. The order and the precision and the way God did everything because he is the master scientist himself. It all makes perfect sense, much better sense than evolutionism. Evolutionism, oh, have they pulled the wool over our eyes. It is so unscientific. Second law of thermodynamics right there disproves evolution, that everything is getting better and better. No, second law of thermodynamics is everything is in a process of decomposition, decay. It's not improving. Anyway, we will get into that eventually. However, for now, let's get back to day two of creation. We're only on day two. We've covered day one. Let's look at verses six to eight as we discuss the Lord's creation of this unique atmosphere around our planet and also the hydrosphere of our planet. So with, with me, look at verses six to eight where it says, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, as we have already mentioned here in our review introduction, the earth, after merely the first day of creation, was still in a predominantly watery condition. All other materials were apparently in solution or in suspension with the water basically in a liquid state. Now, on day two of creation, God, in his omniscient forethought, had purposed to separate some of these waters from the larger mass of water on the earth and to separate the waters high above the earth, the ones, the water that he would pull off the earth, he would separate and put it way up above the earth so that there would be a great space separating the higher waters from the lower waters that were covering the earth. Now, the lower waters, which we call, you know, our oceans and our streams and our rivers and all that, those would serve to provide the water needed in order to sustain life. And the upper waters above the atmosphere served, they're not there today, but they did serve to protect the pre-flood earth and its inhabitants with a water vapor canopy. Now, very importantly, the space between the waters below and the waters above would provide an atmosphere which would be necessary, God knew, in order to maintain the breath of life. Now, how did God cause this tremendous division? I mean, here was earth, now it was formed, and it was spinning, and it had light, but it was still a watery, you know, just a watery, covered in water. Water was up in the air, water was on the earth. Well, how did God divide the waters on the earth and take some of them and put waters above the earth. How did he do that? Well, again, 
as in the creation of light, he did it by the power of his spoken word. Verse 6 says, and God said, right? His spoken word. And then he said, let there be. How many of you remember what that word is? You did, yeah. Let there be. He's going to say it ten times. (laughs) He's going to say, hi-ya. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. If you weren't here last week, you think I've just flipped out, don't you? (laughs) Now, in Hebrew, the word for firmament is the word rakia. And it literally means an expanse or spread out thinness. Dr. H.C. Leupold, who is a great or was a great Hebrew scholar and also a, a Lutheran theologian, he said that this word comes from the Hebrew word, which means to hammer out or to spread out. Actually, that's what they did in, uh, I think it's the book of Exodus somewhere, when they were hammering out gold to make it very, very thin. So it means spread out thinness. The word is probably equivalent to our modern word for space. And it's synonymous with the word for heaven that we looked at in verse 1, where it says God created the heaven and the earth. Remember that word was shamayim? Well, here, rakia and shamamin are basically synonyms. They both refer to space. In fact, we find that God called this spatial firmament uh, heaven. Look at verse 8. He named it, just like he named day and night, he named it heaven. Now, both the heaven or heavens of Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-1 And the firmament heaven that we're looking at here, they both do refer to space. Either space in general or space in particular, depending on the context. Now, in Genesis 1-1, we had space in what? In general. He created space in which matter could exist and in which time could take place. Now, here in verses 6 to 8, he's making space in particular. And the particular space that he makes is obviously a reference to the atmospheric space right above our planet. Now, it is unfortunate that the English word for firmament has been in the past incorrectly interpreted by many as meaning a solid dome which covered the earth and went across the sky. And the result of that incorrect interpretation is that many liberal critics of the creation account used it as evidence that the Bible was unscientific. They'd say, oh, look at how ridiculous the Bible is. It says that there was a solid dome over the earth. But that was an incorrect interpretation of the Hebrew word rakia. In the original, it absolutely means nothing like that at all. It means this spread out space or thinness. Now, the actual process of separating the waters into the upper and the lower divisions was probably or possibly accomplished by God's conversion of a portion of the liquid waters into a vapor state. And this was perhaps implemented through the application of heat energy. Now, what did he give Earth on the first day? Light, right? Heat energy from the light. Now, it is possible when that light came striking on the Earth that God used it to transform a lot of the water on the Earth into vapor. So it's possible that it was the heat from the light created on day one which was divinely used not only to convert a portion of the liquid water into vapor, but to also then induce further reactions on that watery suspension, which released other gaseous components of the atmosphere. Because, you know, the atmosphere is composed of nitrogen and oxygen and argon and other chemicals as well. So the term, the waters which were above the firmament, probably speaks of a vast spread-out layer or blanket of water vapor above the troposphere. Now here's, if you can see this, 
Here's a little city down here. Here's a hot air balloon. Here's a very high mountain. The troposphere is right here. Um, well, actually, it's this whole area right here. It's where, where clouds are, where birds fly, where little planes fly. That's called the troposphere. Well, this, this um, spread out blanket of water vapor would have had to have been above the troposphere and possibly even above the stratosphere, which is this area. I guess the troposphere goes up to here, and then there's a tropopause. Then the stratosphere is the next level, and then up above is the ionosphere, it's called. But the waters above the firmament that God is talking about could not have been the clouds of water droplets which today float around in our troposphere. Because we know that the Bible tells us very clearly that these upper waters, this water vapor canopy, were above the firmament. So this is not above. To be above, you have to go all the way up here. So it was probably up here at this level somewhere, above the atmosphere around us. In addition, we also know that there was no rain on the earth back in those days, before the flood. And there was no rainbow either. There was no rain, no rainbow. And both rain and rainbows would have been present before the flood if the upper waters that, that we're looking at right now, if they were um, just in this level right here. If God had just raised water up to the troposphere, then we would have the hydrological cycle that we have today with clouds forming and then rain when they get too full and all that going on. So we know that this water above the firmament was all the way up here somewhere. Now we have to remember that the original earth before both the fall and the flood was different from our present earth in many ways. And one way, as we find in this study this morning, is that there used to be waters which were above the firmament or the atmosphere. And that's something that doesn't correspond with anything that we have in our world today. The waters above the firmament must have been in the form of a vast, invisible blanket of water vapor. And I say invisible because it would have had to have been transparent. You would have, been, you would have have to have seen through this water vapor canopy for the heavenly bodies of the sun and the moon and the stars, which were created on day four, to serve as signs and to mark the, you know, their calendar by seasons and days and years. Clouds and fog are composed of minute droplets of liquid water. So if this was just clouds above the earth, they are composed of liquid water and you can't see through them. So if the earth was just covered with a low layer of clouds in this level somewhere, you couldn't have seen the sun and the moon and the stars. And of course, we know they saw them all the way up till the flood, didn't they? So this had to be a water vapor canopy because you cannot see through clouds and fog. But you can see through water vapor because water vapor is invisible. Now, it's also probable that the waters above the firmament um, serve the earth in the following effective ways. Now, I'm going to, this is out of Dr. Henry Morris's book called The Genesis Record. He says, first of all, because water vapor has the ability to disperse much of the radiation which is reflected from the surface of the earth, and because it also transmits incoming radiation from the sun, a water vapor canopy around the earth would have produced a marvelous greenhouse effect on the earth. It would have maintained mild temperatures from pole to pole so that the entire world would have been uniformly and pleasantly warm. There you go, Terry. Would have been warm all over, you know, like a tropic, like a greenhouse. And this has been demonstrated to be true by the fossil record left to us from the global flood of Noah's day. The largest bird which has ever been known to exist stood 10 to 12 feet high, I mean double the size of a six-foot man, and easily could outrun a horse. 
This bird was a meat eater, and it could easily chase down its prey and kill it with its sharp talons, had very sharp talons. Now, the only factor which limited this terrifying creature's frightening abilities was the fact that he could not fly. I guess he was just too big to fly. The bird, which was described by one scientist as terror bird, was not alone in the realm of size because it existed in a world which included other enormous birds, one with a wingspan of some 17 feet. Can you imagine a bird that has a wingspan of 17 feet? And also it existed with other large animals known commonly as what? Dinosaurs and huge ferns, green ferns towering 150 feet above the tropical forest and giant alligators and marsupials and a strange group of other oversized creatures hid within the forests of tremendous sequoia trees. And where is it that the fossils of such creatures have been found, do you suppose? Antarctica and Siberia and Alaska and the Arctic. Those are just a few places which give evidence of the fact that the Earth once had a tropical worldwide climate. It did indeed. You know, the dinosaurs lived back then because there were 150-foot fern. They had plenty of food to eat, and the temperature was warm enough to uh, maintain their body temperature. But after the flood, when this water vapor canopy broke, when God divinely broke it and rain came down on the earth for the first time, well, there were some dinosaurs, baby dinosaurs, preserved in the ark. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, one day. But anyway, when they came out of the ark, there was no longer this greenhouse effect. Things didn't grow as big as they used to. The dinosaurs eventually didn't have enough to eat. The weather wasn't warm enough again. I mean, it got cold in a lot of parts of the earth, so eventually the dinosaurs died off. I don't know who gave me this article. Was it somebody here or was it in the night study about the mammoth? That they, Of course, they've been digging up mammoths for years, but they have found one that they've pulled from the ice in, um, I think it's Siberia somewhere. But this mammoth is fully preserved. The whole, I mean, his organs, his flesh, the fur on his skin... And he's huge. Of course, they say that he's 20,000 years old and all this kind of thing. And it's, it's just a very interesting article. But it was, he was found in Siberia, of course, where it's extremely cold. But that's fine because we know back then it was a warm climate when they, where they lived. But I thought it was very interesting. I didn't bring the whole article. But it's very interesting on one of the other pages how it said that they, they were mystified why this giant mammoth died in the prime of life. He was only 47 years old, and they just can't figure out why he died, so they're searching to see if they can find a virus in his body. I just laugh because, I mean, it's just amazing to me that they deny the flood. The flood killed him instantly and froze him in there. I mean, that just, it makes so much sense, but they're looking for a virus (laughs) that killed him. Oh, well. All right, secondly, he says that with practically uniform temperatures around the globe, the great air mass movements which we now experience, you know, all the movement in the air, would have been inhibited. Windstorms such as hurricanes and tornadoes and typhoons, all of those kind of things would have been unknown in that pre-flood world. Then, with no worldwide air circulation, the hydrological cycle, which we are familiar with, would not have been in operation. What's the hydrological cycle? You know, water evaporates and goes up into the sky and makes a cloud. The cloud gets full and then it comes down rain. That's a, that's a second grade level. I used to be a second grade teacher, so that's second grade level of the hydrological cycle. But it would not have been in operation, and this would mean that there would have been no rain on the earth except over the big spaces of ocean. There would have been rain there, but there would have been no rain over the land. And does that agree with the Bible? Does that agree with what the Bible says? Yes. Furthermore, there were no large-scale global air, uh, no large-scale global air circulation, which would mean no air turbulation, no windstorms, and dust particles being transported, you know, thrown up into the upper atmosphere. So the water vapor canopy up there 
would not have been bothered. It would have remained stable. In other words, it would not have precipitated itself. The earth would not only have been maintained at a uniform warm temperature, but also at a uniform comfortable humidity level. And this would have been accomplished by means of daily local evaporation and condensation, such as dew and mist and ground fog, which were produced in each day and night cycle. You know, when it got cool at night and then in the morning, there would be a mist on the ground. What does it say in Genesis 2.6? But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Then the combination of warm temperatures and mild morning mist would give ideal conditions for the growth of very lush vegetation, such as 150-foot-tall ferns, all over the world. There would have been no ice caps. You know, no Greenland would have been green. (laughs) No North Pole, no South Pole. Like, I mean, the poles would have been there, but they would have been like tropics. And there would have been no deserts either. Then a water vapor canopy over the earth would also have been extremely effective in filtering out ultraviolet radiation and cosmic rays and other destructive energies from outer space, which we know are all very harmful to the longevity of both individuals and animals. So the water canopy originally created by God on day two would have contributed effectively to maintaining long life for men and animals. And what do we read about the lives lives of men and women before the flood? They lived incredibly long lives. And we look, you know, men look at that and they say, ah, that's ridiculous. But it isn't. Not when you also take into consideration that Adam and Eve were the most perfect. Their gene pool was perfect. They didn't catch viruses and diseases. Well, there's nobody to catch them from, one thing. But they live longer because of that. And we're getting actually weaker and weaker and weaker because it's the opposite of evolution. But also that water vapor canopy protected them from the radiation. What is it that ages us most is the radiation, the rays from the sun. Even though the water vapor canopy, which God originally created somewhere above the firmament, was divinely condensed and it did precipitate during the great flood, it would seem that this canopy will again be put into place during the millennial kingdom as well as in the new earth when God makes the new earth and the new heaven. It does seem that this will again be in place, the water vapor canopy over the earth. And it's interesting if you read about the last judgments, the seal judgments, which come right before Christ's return when he then sets up his kingdom. One of those is a scorching uh, of the sun. It scorches men. The heat is so intense. And then remember what happens? The river Euphrates dries up. Well, possibly God again uses heat to evaporate evaporate a lot of the waters of the earth and brings back into existence again the water vapor canopy. Also the very last judgment, this last seal judgment, remember what it says? It says that every island and mountain fled away. All the islands and mountains of the earth go back down. So the earth is again smooth like it was in the original world before the flood. Now what would happen if all the mountains went flat? They'd fill up the oceans, right? And the oceans would rise and flood everything. So God obviously has to take a lot of that water and put it back up around the earth again. So why do people live so long during the millennial kingdom? Where a man, if he's 100 years old, is as a child, it tells us in the Bible. Well, again, I think it's because the water vapor canopy is again put over the earth. And I get this from Psalm 148 that I read to you at the beginning of the study because there it tells us that Quote, the waters that be above the heavens will be like the stars and that they will be established forever and ever. So I'm not just making that up. Now, again, we find that God is presented in the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 as a God who is not only all-powerful, being the one who created the atmosphere of the earth and its original water vapor canopy just by the power of his spoken word, but he is also one who fulfills his word, isn't he? Because it says here that he completes that which he begins. He said, let there be a firmament, and then the next verse tells us that he made the firmament. The power of God's word began to actually operate 
and carry out and complete what God had said. And this you can rest on. This will always be the case. What God speaks will be accomplished, even if there are thousands of years in between, like we're looking forward to all that he will accomplish, that he said he will accomplish in the end days. It will come to pass. His, nothing can stop his word from being fulfilled. What God says he will do, he will do. And that's comforting when it comes to you and I, isn't it? Because we can be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in us will perform it. He will complete it to, until the day of Jesus Christ. But he will complete it. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Now, I know I'm almost out of time. Let me just point out some really interesting things, and then we'll close. And we have a real special, if you can stick around and uh, listen to Terry Doby sing. And Libby, is, is Libby singing too? No, she's, oh no, she's just playing. All right. Well, we have spoken early about how perfect and precise everything is in our universe and on earth. So much so that from a thousand million different perspectives, one can see, if he's willing to see, that our world was definitely designed by a mastermind. Um, having just discussed the creation of the atmosphere, we should remind ourselves that we have exactly, exactly the right kind of atmosphere for life. We've just talked about it. But if you look at it and study it, it is perfect for life here on Earth. It contains all of the various elements in just exactly the right proportions. Our atmosphere consists of 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 1% argon and other um, carbon dioxide and other gases. Now, if our atmosphere was any different at all in its composition, then life would be impossible. And let me just give you an example. There are only how many planets known in all the universe? Nine. We only know, they speculate that maybe there's a tenth out there past Pluto, but right now they only know of nine planets in the universe. But of them, only Earth has the precise conditions, and as I said, millions of them, necessary for life. Now, is it interesting, or is it coincidence, that Earth is the third planet from the sun? My son says, Mother, you're carrying it too far. Well, I think it's interesting. <laughs> it is the third planet from the sun, and God is triune God. All right? Um, only Earth contains enough oxygen in its atmosphere to support life. Only Earth possesses liquid water, again, to maintain life, to support life. The Earth's surface, by the way, is 70% water and 30% land, in case you were curious. <laughs> I know you were. Now, it's not only interesting to realize that water, as I already mentioned, is capable of three forms, all found... Oops, I'm behind here. Three forms, all found on planet Earth. That's the um, solid, liquid, and gas. That's interesting, but did you know that there are only three kinds of rocks on Earth? Only three. There are igneous, sedimentary, and metamorphic. Now, if you remember your science school classes, you know that's true. Every rock can be put into one of those three categories. Is that just coincidence? I don't know. I think it reflects our creator, who himself is triune. The planet Mercury is the first planet from the sun, right? Well, it does not have any trace of an atmosphere at all. Could you live there? No, you couldn't live there. Even if it did have an atmosphere, the surface temperature of mercury is around 900 degrees Fahrenheit. So even an air conditioner wouldn't help you very much. You couldn't have an air conditioner because there's no air. So you don't want to go to mercury. You couldn't last. Now, a visitor to Venus, that's the next planet, would not be very kindly greeted because he would not only be poisoned by the carbon dioxide atmosphere and then corroded by the acid clouds, but he would also be crushed by the immense air pressure, which is equivalent to standing under a half-mile depth of ocean seawater. That's how much the air pressure. I mean, that would squish you in a hurry. But not only that, he would be instantly cooked to death by the 600-degree surface temperature. All this, even though Venus is Earth's twin in size. In comparison, Earth's average temperature is what? Remember? 
57 degrees. Venus, our twin, closest to us in size, has an average temperature of 600 degrees. Now, the atmosphere of Mars consists primarily of carbon dioxide with almost no trace of oxygen at all, as is true with Venus. And the evening temperature on Mars drops to minus 100 degrees. Jupiter, which is the largest planet, it weighs 300 time, 318 times as much as Earth, and Jupiter has a diameter which is 11 times bigger than Earth. Jupiter does not even have a solid surface. I mean, they can't even land a, a uh, spacecraft on Jupiter because there's no solid surface like we have here on Earth. It is a sphere of thick, swirling gas. You know those two pink cloud bands oops, that you see on uh, Jupiter? Right here, those, those two pink cloud bands are composed of a variety of poisonous gases. And the weather report, if you were to tune in and listen to the daily weather report in Jupiter, it would be one of daily magnetic storms, crushing air pressure, and cosmic radiation showers. So I don't think you want to get a summer home there either. Saturn, which is the second largest planet. What do we know Saturn for? The rings, right? It's halo of rings. Saturn's atmosphere, just like that of Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune, consists of hydrogen, helium, and methane gas. So no life is possible on Saturn either. Or on one of its moons. Saturn has a couple moons. One of them is named Titan, T-I-T-A-N, and they used to think that life would be possible on Titan. However, they have since discovered that Titan... The atmosphere of Titan is mostly nitrogen along also with some poisonous methane and cyanide. So you can't go to Titan either. Now Uranus shimmers in the night sky as kind of a bluish green color and that's due to its methane atmosphere, again making life impossible. Neptune's surface temperatures remain around minus 328 degrees Fahrenheit, so no life there. Pluto, of course, the furthest one out that we know of, it, if it does have an atmosphere, they're not sure it does. If it does, it is chiefly composed of poisonous methane. Plus, Pluto cannot sustain life because it's even colder than Neptune, and it circles the sun in absolute perpetual darkness. Never, the light from the sun does not reach it. It's just like a star from Pluto. So beyond the planets of our own solar system, there is absolutely no evidence that any others exist anywhere. I mean, there may be some planets out there, but there's no life on them. I can guarantee you that. Apparently, God chose to place life here where? On planet Earth and nowhere else. There is simply, we could say, as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, there is simply no place quite like home, the home that God has uniquely created for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we just again say, praise ye him. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heaven of heavens, and ye waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He hath also established them forever and ever. So let everything that have breath praise ye the Lord. How we love you and magnify your name and thank you for this place we call home. Now we pray that you bless us through the ministry of Terry. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.